Welcome back to Bring It In. My name is Victoria Jackson, and I'm guest hosting today's show. I'm here with Gerard Hector. Hi, Gerard. How are Thank you, you, Victoria? Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you for good being here. You. It's always good to see you. We are, I love doing that to our, to our listeners because they're like, what? What podcast am I listening to? Who is this? Never heard of this person before. <laughs> it's always fun. But as you guys know and bring in, we love to bring in smart people. And Victoria is one of the smartest people I know um, in all things sports history, particularly around the NCAA and that institution. So, Victoria, before we dive into that, can you give the folks a little background and history as to who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, so I'm a professor of history at Arizona State University. I specialize in sport. It's a trick in the classroom. <laughs> I uh, lure students in with sport and then we do history. And, um, you know, I think a lot of students come in thinking we're going to be watching like Tom Brady highlights or talking about like the Manning brothers or something like that. <laughs> But it's like really using sport to dive into, um, you know, a particular time and place in history, whether that's a U.S. history course or, you know, a, an Olympic movement class to dive into what's going on globally, that sort of thing. Um, and then my research is very much public facing. Um, I consider myself to be a policy oriented, future oriented historian. I think it's important that anytime anybody's talking about reform or redesign, they need to have a historian as part of that design team. Um, and so that's been very fun too. Um, you know, kind of taking my skill set and figuring out where it fits in in conversations about the future, which is not something <laughs> I ever <laughs> thought I would be doing. Um, but I kind of wedded my two passions. I um I joke that I drank the amateurism Kool-Aid as a, as a college student because I was an athlete. Um, and, you know, so when I was an athlete, I was serious and focused about being good at that. And then when I was in the classroom, I was serious and focused about being good at history. And I never really realized you could take sport seriously as a historian because um, there are more people doing good sports history right now than there were when I was an undergrad um, and so that was fun um, to, to figure out. It took me a long time to figure it out. But once I did, um, that that became a, a really cool passion. <laughs> no, it, it has. And you, uh, for those who don't know, Victoria um, is a runner. She ran undergrad at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and then postgrad at Arizona State, uh, where she is now. Um, you know, so you understand the NCAA in a way that many people don't. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the word amateurism, which I would assume most of our listeners to our podcast by now know that that's not a thing, right? Amateurism is not real, given the amount of money that comes in, particularly from the revenue generating sports of football and basketball. Um, but can you like give the folks some, some history and some background on the NCAA as an organization and wh why it was created and why it is the way it is right now? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and I should make a distinction between the form of amateurism that I experienced versus <laughs> yes, the form correct. of amateurism mm -hmm. that football and basketball players experience. Mine was like that kind of moral, idyllic purity model of like sport for sport's sake, right? This this isn't a serious thing that people go professional in. It's not like the fine arts where performance is a skill and a talent that we should admire like a classical musician, right? This is just something that people do. And if they're doing it for other reasons, those reasons are wrong and impure and corrupting. Um, and 
for me as a distance runner, I was not obviously in a revenue generating sport, but that culture still kind of applied in the way we, we did not take sports seriously as far as it being like, you know, a valuable thing in society that's high class. Mm -hmm. Um, That's very much a different context for the very professionalized form of what we see in especially power five football and basketball, men's and women's basketball. Um, as far as the history of the NCAA, um, you know, it's it's interesting when you take kind of the historian sort of long-term view, what I really see the history of college sports as being is a history of college football and a history of a battle and a contest for power and in the last 50 years, especially power and money. And um, this contest has played out primarily through the schools trying to regain power and money from the NCAA. It's a very different story when we're looking at basketball, right? That, that March Madness basketball tournament is a more recent phenomenon if we're looking at the long history of the NCAA. But, you know, the NCAA still owns and controls that. That's not the case Um, You know, especially since the 1980s, we've seen this long term like project driven by the schools through their conferences to reclaim football money and power. And and we're there. Um, So, you know, the the biggest first step was the Supreme Court overturning, um, well, calling an antitrust violation Mm -hmm. um, the NCAA's TV monopoly for for football TV. The NCAA owned and controlled that that broadcast TV and the media rights and the conferences and really the schools through their conferences wanted to keep that money with themselves. Um, And in the more recent past, we really see um, the kind of final steps of that with the college football playoff, with the autonomy move. um, And then just with the massive, you know, acceleration of the media rights deals that we've seen through the conferences and what's been going down with the big 10, the SEC also, um, you know, maybe started with that Texas and Oklahoma move, mm-hmm. um, but really kind of the Big Ten <laughs> striking back, um, declaring itself the most powerful Power Five conference. Um, we, we're seeing in this moment that the schools through their conferences have won. Um, that's probably a very different history of the NCAA <laughs> than you're going to get, even from someone like me, like five years ago. Um, five years ago, I would have walked through you know, the term student athlete and the kind of buyers and all that. (laughs) Yeah. The building of the amateur ideology. But I think that the more important story is this schools really just wanting to run professional football programs um, for two reasons. One is the kind of sports industry itself wants to survive and adopt 21st century good business practices. But the other piece is that this sport is critical and crucial to selling higher education. That football provides an entertainment function and it sells the idea of going to college in a way we just don't see anything else have that kind of potent symbology that we have of a fall college football game. And so um, that's the other piece here too, is that the college industry itself, the industry of higher education is dependent on college football as yeah. much as, if not more so, than the college sports 
business industry. And one thing I'd like to see sports media do more of is talk about that piece because they're part of this being sold as a sports story, but it's a higher ed story too. And so we need to hear more of that. <laughs> no, you. I love that you went there. Um you know, you mentioned the Big Ten, which is now what the Big Fourteen soon to be. Like now that <laughs> now that SC and UCLA are coming over, it's like, all right, well, we're just kind of doing our own thing. Um, but talk about the importance of. Oh no, I hate using talk about, but listen, the the <laughs> idea that football is so critical to higher ed and the entire college experience, right? And not every football team at every Power Five school is a money maker, right? But let's look at, for instance. Michigan, because I know they make a ton of money, right? Okay, so University of Michigan, and how much that balance sheet funds the entire University of Michigan overall higher education program? Yeah, I think an economist would point to um, all of the intangibles also, in addition to like looking at, you know, applications increasing and all of those things. Um, there's, there there's something about the role of Michigan football for that community um, and the idea of attending university in Ann Arbor. That is um, something that economists can quantify and I'm not an economist, but it's certainly an incredibly valuable piece. If you look at the new president of the university of Michigan, who was recently hired, um, he, I don't know if it was a new Twitter account now that he's president or if he just joined Twitter, but like, I think maybe the second tweet he put out from that account was like at the football stadium and talking about coach Harbaugh. And so like, it's clear there's a lot of different constituencies, one of which is like the families and young people, you know, that you're selling going to college to, but it's also donors, it's alums, it's the kind of local economy of the region. Like there are a lot of people who care very much about Michigan football and I'm glad you picked Michigan as an example because for personal reasons, um, I grew up in the <laughs> big house and made the pilgrimage to the big house with my dad every weekend and, you know, often watched um, at home when we couldn't travel to or when Michigan was on the road. And so I grew up um, knowing the importance of football to the identity of a community, the identity of a college and the business model of that college too. Yeah. Um, and I definitely picked that for a reason because I knew that. <laughs> um, and just the idea, again, that it 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 uh, it allows. So, look, I have my people who know me know I have my issues with the NCAA, as do you. Um, but there are good things, right, that the sport of football does for higher ed. Right. No Michigan football. No amazing brand new library and research center, right? Like those things don't happen just because someone's nice and like, oh, let me give $20 million because I just feel like it. I mean, sure, I guess that happens sort of sometimes, but not without the entity of football itself, right? And how, because Michigan football in and of itself is a brand that's worth, again, an, econo an economist could tell us or a sports business person. I don't know. You know, they do the Forbes rank of like the most valuable franchises and it's only professional teams. But I bet if they started putting college teams on there, like the University of Michigan football or Alabama football, you people would be surprised to be like, holy hell, they're worth more than some pro franchises. Yeah, you're you're totally spot on. The the sports teams are what, you know, are getting the brand out and just that kind of constant reminder of the existence of this 
thing, um, you know, this place. And it's not just on TV. It's the people wearing the gear and stuff. And you're more likely to be wearing like a Michigan football shirt than you are like a Michigan engineering school shirt. I mean, (laughs) mean, you probably are going to wear that too, but you're going to see that in less, lesser numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, thinking about basketball too, like I grew up the biggest Fab Five fan (laughs) probably in the Chicagoland area, Um, (laughs) like probably not exaggerating on that one. And like, you know, that, that basketball team absolutely like raised the awareness of the University of Michigan and the coolness, like the Michigan, I had a Michigan starter jacket, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you know, like. Yeah. And like Carolina Tar Heels, like you're, you're seeing that brand and you're not, you're seeing it in places beyond the United States too. So I think there's um, an untapped potential for global brand power Mm -hmm. um, in the collegiate space that we haven't seen kind of maximized or optimized um, Mm -hmm. that athletes themselves should be (laughs) getting a piece of that as well. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. my conference, the PAC 12 likes to call itself the conference of champions. And the reason (laughs) the PAC 12 is the (laughs) conference of champions is because of its international athletes Mm -hmm. um, playing sports that are popular globally. And I think the PAC 12 has underutilized um, its global brand and, you know, a a potential market for like, selling Stanford, you know, I can't talk about USC and UCLA anymore, but like, and who knows about Oregon either, but you know, these are brands. um, And it's again, in line with higher education's kind of goals to be global and to attract students from Mm -hmm. various targeted parts of the world. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a Pac-12 basketball game in China for a reason, and it has more to do to do with recruiting Chinese students than it does probably anything else. You know, uh, just as an aside, like I, I used to be a much bigger college sports fan than I am now, just because of the nature of one, I know how the NCAA works and I don't love it. And, you know, not like I'm so deep in the NBA, I just don't have time. But it is, first of all, it's strange calling it the Pac-12. It's still Pac-10 to me. So whatever. And <laughs> two, the idea that SC and UCLA are not, it, that's just bizarre to me. Like I can't even wrap my brain around it. Like, the big what? Because like, you're gonna play football at ten o'clock Eastern? Like what? What's happening? I'm very confused. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's every time there's conference realignment, it's yeah. TV market expansion, and so sure. the Big Ten picking up LA, like that was the driver there. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting, and my eyes were like rolling out of my head. You know, <laughs> hearing UCLA's athletic director talk about, well, actually, we were going to have to cut Olympic sports, and this saves our Olympic sports. So Olympic mm. sports should be happy yeah. because now we have the money. Oh, and we can afford Alston payments now too. <laughs> and <Right. it's> like, <laughs> oh, this is just so—it's like upside down, right? Yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, the 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 biggest harmful impact this move will have is of course on Olympic sport athletes. And, you know, if you're grouping basketball with Olympic sports, absolutely basketball too. It's all the sports that have, you know, midweek competition where you're traveling Mm -hmm. during the week Mm -hmm. in addition to weekends and you're playing a lot of games. Right. I mean, think about that, right? Like you're a, a rower or fencer or whatever. So now on a Tuesday, you fence for UCLA. You're now traveling to Indiana for it's like what? Like a, a, what? Like I'm, I'm like my brain can't even comprehend. Like what are we doing here? But that's the piece of this, right? The Olympic sport. So like this is like so we mentioned the good stuff that 
like football revenue and big, big money brings in, right? Which is all the great stuff students who go to the university get to take advantage of. Well, here's sort of like the negative side of it, right? We talk about all these Olympic sport athletes whom their sports don't generate revenue, but right. These people get full scholarships off the backs of football TV rights deals, right? And the, and the money that these, these players are generating players who the majority of them are not going to play in the NFL because that's just the facts. Um, and they don't get much out of it, but you're going to say, Gerard, NIL's here. It's all good. Everybody's getting paid. Everything's fine. That's eh, not really how it's going. Where are we now with NIL? Is it going like how you thought it would go? Um, and it's still a long way off from what these athletes should be getting. Yeah. Um, well, first, I think part of the big lie of big time college sports is that all sports are the same and all athletes are deserving of the same benefits because they're all college students and they're all getting this priceless, you know, grant and aid, which they should be grateful for. And the reality is that there's many different industries operating within the umbrella of college sports. We have professional football, we've got professional basketball and, and my work really focuses on the power five. So Mm -hmm. that just you know, I always get up, but what about, I'm like, yes, I understand. <laughs> There's many industries. Those are other industries too, right? Um, and, you know, you've kind of got a two-tier model in many of the Olympic sports in the Power Five. You have Olympic development for the world, which is the top tier. Um, you know, a lot of Olympic sport teams in the Power Five are majority international athletes or entirely international athletes. So it's not just Team USA development that goes through American colleges, it's the world's. And of course, it's because we have the best facilities and athletic trainers and sports medicine and competition and coaches because of football money. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, I mean, I wrote a piece pegged to the Tokyo Olympics for the athletic pointing out that football players are paying for team USA and the world's Olympic development. So they, you know, unbeknownst to them, um, you know, there's a donation button you can click on the SOPC website <laughs> and those football players are clicking that button without knowing it. Um, so yeah, as far as the NIL, you know, this was something that never should have, like the restriction on athletes from being able to make money off of doing things that all other students do, um, that restriction should have never been there in the first place. The timing of the removal of that restriction in, you know, the 21st century when we have social media and an ability to monetize opportunities off of that and on and on and on and on. Um, and kind of the idea of like having a brand and marketing yourself as a brand like that didn't exist a generation ago. And had this restriction been removed a generation ago, um, like it had been in the Olympic movement, actually, <laughs> um, we would have seen a kind of similar easing, easy transition out of amateurism that we saw in the Olympic movement. Um, so what I mean is like, you know, in my sport, for example, um, the first steps out of amateurism were like an ability to sign with endorse, you know, an endorsement mm-hmm. contract with a shoe company, make prize money, that sort of thing. Um, but because of the nature of this moment, it's it's become... <laughs> Um, kind of an explosion and then an attempt to kind of institutionalize this within athletic departments. And there is another component to it, which makes me very uneasy um, that we've just created another industry for other people to create jobs and make money off of 
college athletes mm-hmm, yet mm-hmm. again, kind of like mm-hmm. the professionalization of academic support within athletic departments. We're seeing a similar thing with NIL um, because of the nature of this moment. Um, but a story I always like to tell about NIL is that, you know, I played in the orchestra when I was an undergrad at North Carolina and I had friends in orchestra who, who were music majors and some of them were on scholarships. And if, you know, they played in a quartet, like paid a, played a paid gig on the weekend, mm-hmm. they weren't going to come back and find out, oh, you're not an amateur anymore. Right. How dare you make $200 playing because you, you know, your talent is wanted. Right. Right. <laughs> um, so your scholarship is gone and you're no longer able to attend the university of North Carolina. Like, of course yeah. that wouldn't happen. <laughs> or if, you know, like a computer science major develops an incredible app guess what's going to be advertised by that school and in Mm -hmm. the school's like news media outlet the next Mm -hmm. day, like student, like star (laughs) students app sells for $500 million or whatever. Right. (laughs) Um, So I think once again, we have these false ideas of, um, you know, things that are sophisticated and valuable and require a lot of talent and skill and artistic you know, ability like the arts or, you know, like the sciences and then mm-hmm. sport is this other thing over there, but sport should be placed with the arts and the sciences too. Um, if we're talking about it in a university space, but in general also like athletic, highly skilled athletic performance is the same as highly skilled musical performance or theatrical performance mm-hmm. or dance performance. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, what we're talking around, right, is the race issue, right? Because if you look at Olympic sports, while they are international, they tend to be dominated by white people, right? That's just the numbers tell us that, right? So again, you have black labor, football, right? Because the majority of people that play football are black, right? And basketball. So it's the labor of black people that is funding, right? All of these opportunities for white people, right? Much like how the country was built, right? Saying it's, it's the same model. And one of the things about the Olympics that I don't know that most people know that it, that blew my mind when I find out when I found out about it. And this isn't about this particular swimmer or whatever. It's just a reality and the fact that I'm using her as an example because this is the craziness of it. Katie Ledecky, right? Swims, she goes for Stanford, whatever. She goes to the Olympics. She's a pro, right? She can earn money, right? from her Olympic medals in the U S they put, they put it out, whatever gold medals worth. I don't know. However many million hundred thousand dollars, this is worth this. This is worth that. Right. And all of those players, even if they choose not to go pro can come back to school and still swim and keep their scholarship. They earned a hundred thousand dollars winning a gold medal. All good. But a football player gets a slice of pizza from a donor and it's just spending for five games. And it's like, wait, wait, what are we even talking about here? What is the madness here? Right. And it is, baked into this idea of race, right? And this is why the NCAA was set up. Can you talk about like the history of why they, you know, set the NCAA up the way it did and why it creates this this economic disadvantage that we have? Yeah, the that's 100% spot on. Um, the, the one piece that I think makes it even more interesting and illustrates it, this kind of bifurcated nature of what in the past I've called, you know, Jim Crow college Mm -hmm, sports mm -hmm. is um, track and field. (laughs) Um, And a really important intervention by Russell Dinkins, who um, works for Tracksmith 
now and um, was a runner at Princeton when he was in college. He um, has done incredible work helping to get back men's track and field teams that were cut because of the pandemic. Um, And so like Minnesota and Clemson were two places where Mm -hmm. he put in a lot of effort, but he points out that the only sport that isn't revenue generating that has, you know, high percentages of black athletes is track and field. (laughs) And um, the other piece to it is, you know, this idea that there's all these scholarships and the non-revenue sports. Well, track and field only has 12 and a half scholarships and total for an entire team, which is made up of like 65, 70 people. And you have so many different event groups Mm -hmm. and it's not a headcount sport. Um, Those scholarships are split up. And so, um, you know, like a good thought experiment is, well, what if track and field had 85 scholarships like football (laughs) Mm -hmm. did? Mm -hmm. You'd have more opportunities for underserved populations to go to college and not have to worry about debt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You'd have people participating in a sport that's healthier for their brains and bodies. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, we just had a U.S. hosted world championships in Mm -hmm. track and field in Eugene, Mm -hmm. Oregon. And like just very underwhelming (laughs) um, attendance. Um, Now it's hard to get to Eugene and, there's a really strong argument for like, why was Eugene hosting that in the first place? And the cost of actually going in person, that price point just made it too high for the vast majority of people to go. But like track and field should be popular in the US. <laughs> and if anything, I think American colleges have contributed to killing the popularity of the sport. It's the most participated in sport in the high school level. So like you have a natural fan base mm-hmm. and it's clear, like this is a sport that those athletes don't matter as much. Um, and it, you know, you can group it with the other Olympic sports, but I think Russell's intervention also makes it fascinating too. Um, I do think, and where I kind of am well positioned to approach this both as a historian and also because I do a lot of work on both race and gender, a lot of folks who look at big time college sports kind of look exclusively at football and basketball. Um, and so I try to bridge that body of work with the people who do women's college sports who tend to look at women's college sports in a vacuum. And so if we're thinking historically, it's no coincidence that, um, that kind of access by black people to power five schools, which are PWIs, or Mm -hmm. in the case of Southern colleges, they're historically white colleges, um, that those athletic departments start wooing black talent at the same time that they're forced to have more women's sports programs um, operated in kind of more of a big time way, moving Mm -hmm. women's college sports from physical education to the formal intercollegiate athletic department. And of course they fight it, right? So like for the first decade, the NCAA is lobbying and litigating to try to get an exemption from Title IX, this gender equity law that's also applied to school sports, um, from being applied to school Mm -hmm. sports at the same time that, oh, well, we need to expand our talent pool, just like, you know, the schools on the West Coast and then the Midwest have done. And so those Rosters in football and basketball become majority black in a very short period of time comparatively to the 75 years prior that athletic departments were entirely white and male. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's not a direct line and this isn't like a grand conspiracy, 
But what happens is this is in tandem with the, the money exploding in college sports and calls, increasing calls for sharing those resources with football and basketball athletes. And now you've got this great justice shield because people are calling out the racial injustices. There's scandals about athletes not graduating. There's calls for that money to be shared as coaches' salaries escalate too. Um, you can say, well, but what about the women? And so there's this kind of gender justice shield that's excusing racial injustice in college sports. Mm. And again, it's not like the, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> These are things that take place over decades. Um, and there's a lot of kind of complexities and various forces involved. But at the end of the day, that's what I see is going down. Like, you know what? At the end of the day, we're doing more good than harm. And if the people being harmed are black men, like, well, that's okay <laughs> because mm -hmm. that's kind of the through line here, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That that you're carrying the burden. And I, I should say black women too. Mm -hmm. Black women are underserved um, sure. by Title IX. Um, you know, again, if the sports you're adding are country club sports and those, and we mm -hmm. have racially inequitable education at the K through 12 level, it means there are less black women able to play sports like water polo and field hockey and lacrosse. So those scholarship opportunities are not available at the same rates to them as they are to white women from suburban locations like where I grew up in suburban Chicago. You know, you say you're not a conspiracy theorist, but it's not hard to see the through line through all this stuff, Victoria. It's quite coincidental that these through lines are the way they are. And this year, particularly because this is the 50th year anniversary of Title IX, right, this past June. Um, and so, you know, I, the, the state of women's collegiate athletics, particularly as you mentioned, for the underserved white Black women, isn't great, right? Outside of like UConn women's basketball, like right? Which is like a handful of places I can... I can name off the top of my head, right, versus overall, right, we see track and field programs getting cut, so many other other institutions getting cut. Where do you see the future of women's sports, collegiate sports going right now? Yep. Well, you know, and your, your kind of point here also makes me think about what happened at BYU um, that we learned about over the weekend at the volleyball game between BYU and Duke. And... Um, Rachel Richardson, the athlete who is the victim um, of racist abuse, mm -hmm. verbal abuse mm -hmm. from um, a spectator and the lack of response. Um, mm -hmm. The person was allowed to stay. Um, BYU didn't do anything about it. It really is a reminder that the NCAA doesn't have any guiding principles. <laughs> like there should be a policy with procedures in place for what to do in these situations that the NCAA requires all institutions to follow. A school should have introduced that legislation. And um, I would say, BYU, you need to introduce this legislation now. Um, other organizations around the world have a protocol in place for when there's a racist incident like this, whether it's a player or a coach or a spectator of what to do. And it's just another reminder that um, these institutions are not set up to protect black students and black athletes. Or, no, especially um, not BYU. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Long history there. Um, yeah. So as far as the future of women's college sports, um, 
I group the future of women's college sports in with the future of Olympic sports in the collegiate space. Again, there are different industries mm-hmm. operating within, um, you know, big time college sports, basketball, men's and women's basketball. I kind of set aside with football as far as, first of all, basketball is globalized. And so there are external forces that are pressuring um, redesign and reform of basketball in ways that we're not seeing with football. So I think um, basketball, (laughs) you know, it's why we saw basketball coaches um, verbalizing their support of athletes NIL rights long before we saw football coaches Mm -hmm. doing it because the athletes they're recruiting have alternative pathways, multiple pathways to, to make it, to go pro, whether that's in the NBA or elsewhere. Um, other women's sports, I group with the Olympic sports where we need, we need more than just college sports redesign. We need kind of nationwide elite youth Mm -hmm. development sports redesign. Um, and we've had this before in 1978, Congress passed the amateur sports act, which, um, basically gutted the AAU's kind of total power over the Olympic movement within the United States and um, created, you know, a more powerful USOPC and national governing bodies sport by sport. Well, you know, and it was called the Amateur Sports Act. So we need to (laughs) rethink of that with um, college sports as one piece of a broader redesign. We need new forms of subsidization of Olympic sports because football shouldn't have to pay for Olympic development in the U S and for the world anymore. Um, and so the idea that I've introduced is a tax on sports betting. Sports betting is new. Um, so there's going to be less resistance to a tax on something that's new, something that people have kind of understandable moral qualms about, um, to put a tax on that and use those monies to fund kind of the top tier of Olympic sports through colleges, still relying on that infrastructure. And it's public money running through public schools, right? Or schools that receive public federal dollars, private schools receive federal dollars too. So it's not that we'd be cutting out private colleges. Um, and then you have a second tier, which is a scholastic model of sport that we see at the high school level, I was talking with um, a colleague whose daughter is a freshman playing soccer in college and just got to campus. And she was telling me that this class, there were like hardly any recruits because of um, the additional years of eligibility from the pandemic that older athletes Mm -hmm. got and that this class has been hurt. And really through like, you know, recruiting through like 2025, 2026 has really been gutted because a lot of those spots have been taken up. And like, we used to have freshman teams. We should still have freshman teams. It should look more like high school, you know, and and you don't need a lot of money to run multiple sports teams. If you're in a part of the country where there's a lot of colleges locally, where you can just travel, you know, from UNC to Duke 10 miles to play each other, that sort of thing. So I think a two-tier model in the Olympic sports is the best path forward with that kind of Olympic development funded through congressional allocated funds from a sports betting tax. And then the schools themselves leaning into the responsibility that should have been there all along, which is to provide more sporting opportunities because there is educational value in playing sports and to not have to cut athletes who just really want to show up and play, but to 
create, you know, multiple opportunities to play at different levels. Okay. So how do we make you the czar of college sports? Because that's obviously (laughs) what we need to have. We need to create that position, right? Petition the government. This needs to happen and someone needs to be in charge because your ideas make sense, right? If you want to keep the professionalization part of it, we can, but be very clear and call it what it is. This is pro sports, right? This is Olympic development. Over here, scholastic athletics, right? And it's it's simple. And you can everyone gets what they want, right? And there's no problem. Why do we have the need to hold on to things the way they are? I think a lot of people are making a lot of money and they want to <laughs> ride it out until they're forced to change. Um, that's kind of the other through line here. You know, we could have seen the schools or the NCAA get out ahead of NIL more than a decade ago um, during the Ed O'Bannon mm-hmm. antitrust lawsuit. And of course, they're not going to do that. Um, so we just see more and more lawyers getting paid lots and lots and lots of money. <laughs> Same thing with Alston. And now, you know, I, I wrote a piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education pointing out like basketball athletes were paying for the lawyers to argue that basketball athletes shouldn't get more money for their education since Jesus. Alston had become narrowed to focus on education spending because that money from March Madness goes to the NCAA and a portion of that was paying these lawyers. So again, that was basketball players paying for something that was going against their own interests and their educational interests at that. Um, So yeah, (laughs) it's it's really fun. (laughs) You're like, yeah. (laughs) Um, The NCAA, and this is one of my like that's the most hilarious things is registered as a 501c3 is a nonprofit entity yet the March Madness uh, TV rights deal is worth billions of dollars. How is it they're able to bring in billions of dollars yet still call themselves a not-for-profit organization? Well, I mean, you have a lot of educational nonprofits that do the same <laughs> thing, right? And I mean, to their credit, like, in addition to paying lawyers and lobbyists a whole lot of money, like the vast majority of that money goes back to the schools um, in a variety of ways. Now it's not all going to the schools that are playing in that tournament to raise those funds. It's going across all three divisions um, and to all sports. So again, it's just another example of money made by a disproportionately black group of athletes who are not getting the same educational experiences as their non revenue athlete peers um, supporting the athletic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. elite athletic and academic experiences of everyone else. Um, so this money transfer um, is happening at many different levels. Yeah. Um, Are we going to see, cause I know the big 10 just signed their new broadcast deal. What was it? 7 billion, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Are we going to see a point where that money finally starts getting divvied the way it's supposed to go? And I'm not, and I feel like here's the fear that, you know, college football fans are like, you know, people who I watch it because these guys care more. And like, it's all coded language for like, you just like to keep black people broke. I get it. But, and their fear is they don't want to see a black kid with a hundred thousand dollars in his pocket, right? For whatever reason, that's going to make them crazy. But that's like that. There's a, it's, it's economics people. You're not just going to hand out hundred thousand dollar checks. Like that's not how it works. But will we see a point where the money starts getting divvied, divvied out from the real money source, which is these broadcast deals? Yeah, I mean, th- so there's there's a couple different pieces to this. Um, the global 
sports industry has moved toward compensation packages, including both getting paid and education. So, um, you know, the alternative pathways to the NBA um, that we were talking about earlier, there's a lot of playing opportunities for, you know, top high school recruits Mm -hmm. that involve both of those things, um, whether it's the G League or overseas or Mm -hmm. with Overtime Elite and the academy Mm -hmm. system there, you can get paid and get an education. Um, For athletes in the pre-NIL era in Olympic sports, you know, oftentimes if they turn pro early, um, what that would mean if it's an individual sport is you're not joining a team, you're getting an endorsement contract from a shoe company, that shoe company would pay for that athlete to continue to go to school to complete their degrees. So like Allison Felix is the best Mm -hmm. example of this, actually. Allison Felix went pro out of high school and Adidas, her first sponsor, paid for her to go to USC. Funnily, USC claims her as one of their alums. She never competed for USC. She's a graduate of USC, (laughs) but she never competed for the USC track team because she was pro from the Mm -hmm. get-go. So (laughs) I think um, the issue is that football is a domestic sport. It's a sport played by one country. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there isn't any sort of external force pressuring football to adopt the business practices of elsewhere. But, you know, the NFL has education funding and academic support for degree completion. There's this really kind of precarious balancing act between the NFL and NCAA FBS football, Mm -hmm. where like the NFL is advocating for college athletes to stay in college because it's in their interest Mm -hmm. to kind of keep the peace with college Mm -hmm. football. But at the very same time, if a, a NCAA football athlete who is a total star wanted to go pro early, the NFL has funds for that person (laughs) Mm -hmm. to get a degree. And there's a lot of people who've taken advantage of this NFL program to get graduate degrees. Jeremy Bloom is where Mm -hmm. I learned about this. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that. I think the other force is um, there's another antitrust case in Judge Claudia Wilkins' court. The problem is it's not starting until the fall of 2024, so it's two years away um, when that trial starts. But it's House versus NCAA, and the named athletes are um, a football player from Illinois, um, Sedona Prince, mm. <laughs> who uh, needs no introduction, and um, Grant House, a swimmer from ASU. and. Mm. Um, the, the antitrust piece of this case that will be determined is whether, um, schools are in violation of antitrust law because they're in the conferences, because they're not paying for the NIL of athletes when they're selling these massive media rights deals. So it's the NIL of the media rights deal. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. you know, that $1 billion a year price tag that the big 10 just sold is because of athlete performances. Mm -hmm. And those athletes are humans who Mm -hmm. have names and images (laughs) and likenesses. Um, And so forcing through the courts to revenue share from media rights is probably going to happen. The problem is it's going to take a while. Um, And I, I would like to believe competition between the conferences will force the issue or, you know, an innovative assertive leader of one of these conferences, maybe a Kevin Warren Mm -hmm. will say, okay, you know what, we're going to get out ahead of this so we can do it the right way. We saw how doing it after the fact and in a reactive way has been kind of 
a big shit show mm -hmm. <laughs> when it comes mm -hmm. to like NIL. So let's, let's lead on this and, you know, study it <laughs> and figure out how to best implement this now. I'd, I'd like to see the big 10 do that, or maybe one of these power five conferences that feels like it's days are numbered. This is how they survive. <laughs> so maybe it's the PAC 12. Yeah, please come on. I mean, too late to keep SC and UCLA now, but you know, and the thing that gets me is that these are, these are universities where in theory, the smartest people in the world reside. Nobody can figure out how to do this, right? You can't get your economics department together. With the, like, wait, 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 I got it. If we project out this way and we figure like, no, no, it'll work and we'll get better recruits. It's like an arms race, right? They'll want to come to us because we're way ahead of the game. Like, I don't, I mean, but again, you're, to your point, it's some president somewhere like, no, but I make X amount of whatever dollars doing it this way. Like, I'm not going to mess up my gravy train. You don't realize, like, yeah, but in the long run, you're going to actually do better and make more money. It's that, it's that whole can't see the forest for the trees thing. Yeah, totally. Um, and I think there's other kind of variables at play. Like, you need to keep peace with your state legislature um, if you're the leader of a public university. And if you're meddling with college sports, like, that, that could mm. really kind of come back to slap you in the face mm -hmm. if you're in Alabama or in Auburn, you know, where, or at Georgia, where, um, you know, people care more about football than anything else. <laughs> yes, literally anything else. <laughs> yeah. But I like your, you know, it is really frustrating that the irony here is that these are institutions of higher education who yes. have the interdisciplinary change yes. you could build to redesign this. Um, I was really fortunate a year ago to be part of a team like this, thanks to an outside force. So it wasn't from within <laughs> higher education. It was a family foundation that's a lot like a think tank called Arnold Ventures. Okay. And um, Kelly McManus directs their higher education policy team. And she's a college football person. Her dad was a longtime college football coach at Wake Forest. Her brother and I think also her brother-in-law are college football coaches. So she knows this stuff and she knows higher ed. And she kind of assembled people from many different disciplines to meet and talk about this stuff in a round table. And then um, five of us wrote white papers on mm. various kind of redesign ideas. So mine was making the case for... Um, media rights revenue sharing with power five football players. Um, and it, it was just such a wonderful opportunity. And it really also kind of showcased, yeah, we can do this. If you bring us all together, we can figure this out. Um, so let's do that. And the next step <laughs> is running economic models to see, okay, what what's the optimal path forward in this sense? I mean, Christ, how many of these public schools have MBA business schools like make that be a class project like come on this is not rocket science like you can literally get this stuff done like and you do have rocket scientists on your campuses as well you can figure <laughs> all of this stuff out it's not hard at all people but you know why break the system if it's not broke you know broken for the people who it works perfectly for um mm -hmm. something you mentioned earlier i want to touch on as we start to wrap things up is this idea about youth sports the so the scholastic level below college so high school and and lower right so amateur like and i see it more and more now especially the olympic sports right and this is another sort of demarcation where if you come from a family that has means you are far ahead of the curve than a family that doesn't right and this is why 
tennis, golf, and sports like that still struggle to have high minority population and representation, right? Because who's got money to spend a million hours on tennis lessons or move my whole family to a warm weather state to just, that's just not real. Like, how do we think about changing the lower model? Is it about what you talked about, which is subsidies? We need more subsidies to subsidize these programs at the school level. Yeah, I'd like to see a lot more public funding of play opportunities for everyone, um, you know, as a community service, as a health service for all levels and, you know, making sure youth are the priority and the emphasized group. Um, rec league, you know, funding of rec league sports and a more robust running of money through schools in a way that's equitable, um, you know, but we don't have equitable funding of schools at all. Um so I often get asked, like, how do we fix access to college sports? I'm like, well, the bigger first step is making sure everybody has equal educational opportunity in the K through 12 level, which means like funding schools equitably, which doesn't happen. Your zip code determines the quality of your educational and, and athletic opportunities right now in the United States. Um, so that that requires massive overhauling. The privatization of youth sports um, is another predictable and sad development. Um, the pr privatization of all forms of play um, is something that's been happening since World War II. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like public pools are a great example mm -hmm. of this, um, that you have this proliferation of public funded, just massive swimming pools in a moment where there's gender desegregation of public swimming places. And um, there's a great book called Contested Waters uh, by Jeff Wiltsey about the history of the predictable um, segregation by race, mm -hmm. um, illegal <laughs> segregation of race in northern swimming pool spaces when pools are desegregated by gender. What's um, that you say, Victoria? Racism happens in the North, not just the South? I Weird. I know. <laughs> Shocking, right? Yeah. Um, and that book is great because it shows the kind of grassroots tactics of trying to gain access to those public swimming places by local chapters of the, the NAACP and Young Swimmers. Um, and it, you know, placed in the context of a broader privatization of play, um, it's, it's super unfortunate because play opportunities are the greatest sort of builders of community um, across generation, across race, across socioeconomic income, like sports are what build community and bring us together. And um, there's, there's reasons beyond sport for investing in public play space. <laughs> you, I mean, my God, you are so right. This made me think of a podcast I was listening to. And I knew this like uh, anecdotally, but like the podcast sort of crystallized. It's called The Sum of, Sum of All of Us. And it's run by the former president of the Demos, which is a think tank. And it's basically how when the public pool proliferation was happening and they were sprouted up all over the country, how once desegregation started happening, the people within the towns literally like, oh, Black people are coming here? Yeah, no, we're going to get rid of the pool, period. So nobody gets to enjoy it. And it's like, wait, what? So no one gets to have it now because you don't want to share. And yep. it's mind-blowing. And when you think about, to your point about the privatization of sports, you go into towns and even towns that you would consider affluent, like the spaces where there would be for parks and basketball and playgrounds. I'm like, where are they? Like, because 
the kids who can afford it private way, they go export it wherever to where it is, right? And pay and do the whole thing versus, well, what if I don't have the ability to do that? And I just want to do, well, yeah, sorry. Sorry for you, my friend. Yeah, it's, it's really sad. Um, and it's, um, you know, I, I mean, the other piece too is it's created um, a drive for specialization at young ages that kind of kill the joy of sport and the playfulness of sport. But it's also like operating in the opposite direction of developing holistically as an athlete with a lot of like potential. And if you talk to a lot of college coaches, if they're comparing athlete A, who's, you know, top 25 athlete, but has played only one sport for the last 10 years to athlete B, who's kind of comparably ranked maybe a little lower, but they've played four sports Mm -hmm. (laughs) like Mm -hmm. that college coach is going with the multi-sport athlete 10 times out of 10, honestly. Um, and that messaging just doesn't seem to get through to these kind of driven parents who want their athletes to achieve the dream of the college scholarship. (laughs) They, they will make decisions against their own best interest because they have convinced themselves that you need to be, you know, hundred percent committed and all in to this one right. sport from a young age. And that's just simply <laughs> not what coaches are looking for, which is kind of funny. Oh, I, I mean, God, we could go into stories as a former coach myself at how many times I would say in my head to parents, like the reality is your kid's not getting a scholarship anyway. Doesn't matter. <laughs> like, right. The re- like the idea that you like, yes, there are more like going pro is like a super minuscule like percentage, right? College scholarships are also a small percentage, right? They're, they're not. Yeah, there are a lot, but you know how good of an athlete you have to be to get one of those? Like, it's really hard. <laughs> you have to be really good. It's probably not likely, but you know. <laughs> well, and comparatively, there's so much more academic money. So if you had, if you really wanted to maximize your child's mm-hmm. opportunities to, to earn scholarship, the place to do that is not in sports. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> just FYI, if you want to get the real money. Academic money is way more of it, but you know, I guess that's, that's not as cool, right? When you're when they're sitting around talking to their other their other parent friends about what their kid's doing. <laughs> Victoria, this was awesome as it always is. You are a fountain of knowledge. Um, tell the people where they can find you um, and where they can read funny tweets and all sorts of stuff that you that you write. <laughs> well, thank you, Gerard. I always appreciate talking with you, and thank you for this opportunity. Um, I, my first love was basketball actually, um, as an athlete, just playing outside by myself. Um, so it's, I always jump at an opportunity to, to <laughs> even though we didn't talk about basketball, but we didn't talk basketball, basketball ton. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the place you can find me is, um, on Twitter, I'm at history runner. Um, and I tweet mostly about college sports, um, but other sports issues, mm-hmm. sport and society issues too. And I'm at Arizona State University. So if you want to reach out in that way, you can find me um, on my, you know, webpage with ASU there and hit me up if you have any questions. Yeah. And she's, um, again, wealth of knowledge and just someone really good to talk to about all of this stuff. All right, Arizona, we'll hit you with an NBA thing before we leave. It's been a fun kind of two years if you're an NBA fan in the state of Arizona. Phoenix Suns have been really good. Last playoffs, notwithstanding, a little rough. (laughs) A little rough. 
But, you know, are you how's how is the community in Arizona? Are they like, yeah, NBA, the Suns, we're good. Or is it like, nah, nobody cares? Um, I'm a massive Mercury fan. <laughs> WNBA. Um, well, sad. DT got so hurt. Skylar had some issues. I don't really know what's going on there. That was a little weird with her coach. I don't know. Something's up. Shea Petty just got hurt and had <laughs> yeah. surgery. And of course, like the big tragic thing this year has been Brittany Griner. Yes, of course. Um, and yeah, so it it was a really hard year for that team. Um, and I think it's going to be hard <laughs> for mm-hmm. quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the Mercury and the Suns, um, it's really nice to have, you know, those teams together here in the yeah. Valley. Um, and I do think those teams together have risen both of their kind of fan communities because, you know, the Mercury for a long time has been the best team in the Valley, sure. regardless of sport. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's fun to you know, watching kind of generations of college students come through, um, many of whom are out of state. The the sun's love um, has been really nice to see. Um, students have been really into that team um, and their swagger. Um, <laughs> I haven't, my my son has only been to Mercury games. He's never been I to see that on Twitter. Games, yeah, he's, so. he's big into the Mercury. I see it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to, to get him out to a Suns game. For but sure. I love that, though, because you're – and I hate the phrase normalizing things, but whatever. I'm going to use it. But you're normalizing women's professional sports. So I'm like, it's what, whatever. We're going to a basketball game. Like, right? So he's going to be in his 20s like, why is it weird to watch professional women's basketball? It's not. Right? Like, I've done this my whole life. Yeah. So it's, it, it's awesome. And what we should all be doing, folks. But anyway, thank you again for joining me. This was awesome, folks. We will be back on Thursday. With our season preview content, we're going to start talking NBA championship bus. How many teams are on it? Who's going to win it? We don't know. we got some time to think about it. But Coach Thorpe and Henry and I will be here talking about that on Thursday. And until next time, talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.